You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. set my timer here, but there's an old pastor joke that says, uh, boy brought his friend to church and the pastor took his watch off and put it at the corner of the pulpit. And the friend asked his friend who pastor's kid said, why is your dad take his watch off? He goes, don't worry about it because he doesn't pay attention to it. Um, <laughs> hey, I'm full of jokes. I'm here all night. So we'll, uh, we're, we're going to have some fun. Hey, so um, a few, well, this was last summer, actually. Uh, Our son has participated for a couple of summers in a leadership program that happens to meet in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, where the students work at Dollywood. Uh, He can get you free tickets um, or, and then they do some discipleship stuff. Well, we went out to go visit with our son, Nate, and he, um, and, but on the ride there, our daughter's in the back seat. She's plugged in. She's, I'm not thinking she's checked in. And Beth and Beth and I decide we're going to get into an argument and so uh, we just start this little rumble, little rumble all the way to Pigeon Forge. Well, finally it ends. We get there. We welcome Nate. We say hi to him. We get checked into the hotel. We kind of make arrangements. And then here we are, same bedroom. Our, our, our daughter's there with us. And I, I can't remember exactly who brought it up, but uh, either it was Beth that brought it up or I brought it up. And so we just decide, hey, let's just have a, a good night fight. And uh, it's the best time to have fights, so we decided let's just continue on. And then as we we're talking quietly, you know that kind of because our daughter's in the room, but she's plugged in. And then out of nowhere, you hear this from the other side of the room: round two. <laughs> Man. You know, there's a great passage in Matthew 18 that says that where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. You you know this verse? Like we quote this a lot and we use it to get you guys to come to church. And, but you know, what's interesting about that verse is that it comes in a context and the context is Matthew 18 about church conflict, which means when two or three gather, when two or three Christians gather in my name to fight, there am I with them. God does not leave the building when we fight. He doesn't abandon us, but rather he intends to use it for very specific purposes. And so Beth and I, this summer, we've been uh, speaking a lot about marriage. We just finished a book about marriage. And so I'm going to specifically speak to marriage. But really this morning, we're going to talk about how the gospel comes. There's an invitation to trust what Christ has done on our behalf in the midst of conflict. Okay? So if you would uh, open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, if you have them, or turn on your phones, either way. Uh, They both work. Galatians chapter 6. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, then I'll pray, and then we'll dive in. Alrighty, Galatians 6, I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, 
You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you be too tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he's something, when he's nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Hey, why don't I pray for us? Father, uh, thank you so much for your, your word that reminds us of all that you have done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And thank you for your spirit who reminds us of all the things that Jesus has taught us and brings alive the truth of your word in our hearts. And so, Father, as I speak and as your people listen, I pray that you would further the purposes that you have already begun. And that this morning, people would walk away with a tangible experience of having met with the person of Jesus Christ. And their lives would be transformed because of it. In Christ's name, amen. So I'm going to be a little vulnerable here. Um, See, my Texas, I grew up in Texas, and it took me two years to get rid of that accent. And I've been in Paragold long enough, it's starting, that southern accent's starting to rub off on me. So my tongue's getting slow. I'm going to be vulnerable. Um, so Beth and I, um, we got married when we were 20. So we were just finished our sophomore year in college. We, we really had no money at all. I remember when we went from the 99-cent turkey-tasting substance to the 4.99 actual turkey breast deli meat. Like, that was a really big deal for us. Well, I don't know exactly how it happened or where it came from, but um, the Lord provided for me entertainment during that season. I somehow got my hands on a copy of the VHS copy of The Twister. Anybody remember the movie Twister? Thank you. Yes, yes. Come on now. Um, that, that became, because our, our antenna to the TV, uh, I don't think we could afford an antenna, so um, we just had our TV and we had a VCR. So I watched Twister hundreds of times. As a matter of fact, I mean, it's so funny because now uh, if anyone in my family, if we're ever just channel surfing, trying to find something on TV, if they see Twister, everybody knows that we have to stop for at least a moment and pay homage. Not, not, not watch it, but just kind of say like, we remember you. Thank you so much (laughs) for entertaining our dad for years. So that is, by default, my, one of my favorite movies. Well, if you remember, there's a scene in the movie where this couple, the two main actors, have, um, they're in kind of at the end of potentially finalizing their divorce, so they've been arguing, and he's, she, he's presented with divorce papers, but they're out on the road, and they're storm chasers, so they're looking to somehow deploy this scientific instrument and try to get it into a tornado. And how they do that is they drive their trucks into tornadoes to release all these little silver ball things. It's a very sophisticated movie. It's a very scientific. Um, it's, it, people want to know about how to... Twisters. And so the first scene is it's he and his potential ex-wife driving down the road. They see a tornado off in the distance and they start fighting. And she's like, she just starts prodding at him, just poking at him. Ladies, you know what I'm talking about? That kind of prod and poke in your wife or your spouse, right? And so he, he gets infuriated. Like, I, I have the courage to chase this tornado. And so he decides to jerk the truck 
into the ditch that's following alongside the road. But he quickly real she realizes, oh, wait a minute, I've provoked him and now we're stuck in this ditch and we can't get away from the tornado. And he's trying his best to get out of the tornado. And now they're yelling at each other about how they're stuck. And they're going to get, eventually this whole argument ends up ramming into a bridge where they both have to get out, lay hold of some of the pylons to the bridge and allow this tornado to pass over them. The tornado picks up the truck and throws it back on the road. Now, what I'm really talking about is marriage conflict. Have you ever been in this kind of conflict where before the argument begins, you know where it's headed? But you don't know how to control the truck, so you pull the truck over into the ditch anyway, and you start getting into the dance. And it only takes a word. Our daughter knows, even our dog. We've got an Australian shepherd that when Beth and I like, say something, the dog will just get up and walk away like, oh, I know what's going to happen here. <laughs> And, but it, you know this. And then, so then all of a sudden you're stuck in the ditch, the same pattern that you've been in for years. And there, it only heads to one dead end. You end up crashing and then you're just trying to save your life. And in the process, somehow you end up losing an arm. You lose your heart. You lose love. You lose connection and you don't know how to repair. So they, as my friends would say, am I in your kitchen yet? Meaning that the truth of the scriptures apply to those kinds of arguments. And although that for us can often bring out a fear in our hearts that somehow this will never change, my spouse will never change, this marriage will never be what I intend for it to be. Paul, with kindness, with patience, with wisdom and clarity, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, wait a minute. This is where God shines. So in Galatians chapter 6, we're going to look at where, how the goal of conflict being the gospel and the dance between those who are the recipient of it and those who deliver it actually accomplish God's purposes and our marriages, our relationships, our churches can actually become trophies of God's grace. That if you're anything like me, whenever I was growing up, my parents saved all my trophies. And if you go back, you can still see pictures and trophies in my home that I grew up in. Well, one day God will be exalted and worshiped by people from every tongue, tribe, and nation because of the work that he accomplished in our lives. He is not weary. He's not sad. He's not disappointed in your marriage. But he does intend to change you. He does intend to glorify himself through it. So, first, number one, what is the goal of conflict? And before some of you say, to be right, that's not it. Or to avoid it at all costs. That's the equal but opposite error. The goal of conflict is the gospel. When we address the failure of those closest to us, the intent that God has, having put us that close to another person who's been made in the image of God, is to participate in the fulfillment of the law of Christ. There is another law that's at work that brings condemnation and judgment. 
This comes on the tail end of Galatians chapter 5, speaking of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit. And so you can see this here. Um, what verse are we in? Um, in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. What would it look like for us to participate in conflict where Christ is the one who is restoring? Christ is the one who's reconciling. Christ is the one who is renewing. Christ is the one who is redeeming. Remember, it was the Galatians that were facing this very tension as they were beating one another up with the law. What does God want from us? And you've got to get it right And oftentimes that came at the expense of one another. They were using the law for themselves and against one another. But God intends so much more for our conflicts. When we face conflict with one another in whatever relationship it may be, our hearts that are aligned with the truth of God's purposes, then joined in the life of another, embracing his tools and his path for reconciling relationships, The Spirit joins our efforts because the Spirit of God will not join something that's not holy. He will not join a lie. And if we have taken matters into our own hands, we're on our own. But whenever by faith we are moving towards our spouse, our family members, our friends in love, whenever they are in need of the truth of the gospel, the Spirit of God rests with us and amazing things happen. Larry Crabb, a Christian counselor, said it this way. A vision we give to others of who and what they could become has power when it echoes what the Spirit has already spoken into their souls. So think about that for a moment. God's Spirit won't accompany my efforts to try to make my wife into something he doesn't want her to be. But... When my heart's at rest with the truth of God and his purposes through the gospel and his spirit and word, and I am joining with God in the purposes that he is seeking to accomplish in my wife's life, something amazing and beautiful can happen. The gospel became an experiential reality to me, although I became a Christian in the Southern Baptist Church in Dallas. It became really tangible and real and when I was in seminary around 2000, 2001. I remember um, we, uh, the dumpster was on the other side of campus, so I would oftentimes put the trash, I'd take the trash out, put it on top of my car, drive it over to the dumpster and put it in. So it's an adequate metaphor of I'm literally with trash on my back headed to the dumpster whenever I hear this song uh, called Jesus I Come. Jesus I Come out of my sorrow. Oh man, I'm forgetting the lyrics right now. It's a fantastic song. And I stopped the car in the parking lot and realized, Jesus, I'm coming. Jesus, I I bring my sorrow. I bring my sadness. I, I bring my sin. I bring my failure. I bring the trash on top of my car. Jesus, I come to thee. Well, at the time, I wasn't known to be one to confess, to apologize, one to make repair whenever I've made a mistake. And oftentimes, I was taking what I was learning and then applying it to Beth. (laughs) That was not a joke. (laughs) But it is really funny that I said it that way. Um, So 
What ended up happening is I I recognized that in my endeavor to carve all the nuances of sin out of my life, I took the same scalpel and applied it to my wife, trying to mirror the way that I thought God treated me and to create us both into something that I thought we should become. And after that moment, I just made this commitment. And I don't always follow it, but I did for that summer. That any time Beth would say something to me, Jeff, that was hurtful. Jeff, that was disrespectful. I would simply say, I'm sorry. Without defense, without justification. I took the grace of God for a ride to see, can you handle my sin, Jesus? And he could. It took a couple weeks. Beth was like, what games are you playing? Why are you apologizing so much? I know what you're doing. But then she started to realize, oh no, he's really trying to change. And slowly and eventually, she too began to apologize. She began to simply say, I'm sorry. See, here's the good news. It is God's gift that our spouses are resistant to us trying to make them into our image. And so there's a profound opportunity when two spouses actually yield to the truth of the gospel and receive one another's influence in the way that God intended it. Because here's the promise. He who began a good work in you is going to carry it to completion. We don't have to do that. We just have to respond when there's opportunity. Number two, let's talk about the gospel receiver. And here's the main idea. God intends to use those closest to you to accomplish his purposes. Now that could be a spouse, that could be a supervisor, that could be a coworker, that could be a parent. God intends to use people to accomplish his purpose. Now, I don't know why he does it. It's kind of crazy that he does. The Bible is replete. Matter of fact, it's almost a testimony to its veracity, its truthfulness, simply because it's so brutally honest about how God's people screw everything up. I mean, he could have done it any number of ways. Why he entrusted this thing to us, I have no idea. Except to say that he intends to glorify himself through it. I mean, he says, call my sons and daughters from afar, everyone whom I formed and made, um, that I might receive glory, that they might praise me for what I've done in their lives. Here's a great quote from another author that I really enjoy. His name's Dan Allender. And he says this, marriage, even though it will introduce to us to some of life's most arduous moments has brilliant intentions in mind. It is unapologetically interested in chipping away at our dysfunctional thoughts, patterns, and postures in life and inviting us and our spouses to become the best versions of ourselves. So when you make a mistake, it is God's intention to use your spouse to further his purposes in your life. Matter of fact, even marriage researchers have come to understand this. 
There's a marriage researcher, John Gottman. Now, this sounds crazy. I would not recommend it, although I'm thankful for the people who participated in it. But he set up something called the Love Lab. Couples would go and live in this apartment and be monitored for several days. They were connected biometrically. They were recorded audibly and video. Now, there were private moments. They weren't intrusive. And so over 30 years of experience, one of the several things that differentiate disasters at relationship versus masters at relationship is this, to accept influence from one another. And as a matter of fact, he said, although that is really important, what is the most important, what really moves the needle on a marriage is the husband's willingness to accept the influence of his wife. Even researchers are finding out this to be true. What we know to be true here in the Bible, that God intends to use our spouse if we will receive the invitation. So three things that I want you to keep in mind for those of us who need the gospel and are caught. Number one, trust the process. In Galatians 6, 1 It's God's gift to you that he put those who are spiritual in your life to be restored and not restored. I'm not even sure what that word means (laughs) to be restored. Now, we can do a lot of things to minimize our spouse's voice in our life. I am a master at silencing my wife. We can deny it, we can escape it, we can make excuses, we can use sarcasm, we can use humor. But if there's one invitation in this passage for all of us, it's this, that when we make a mistake, it is God's gift when our spouses see it. When you've sinned, when you've transgressed, accept the voice into your life. Because to deny it may be denying God's work in your life. Number two, be open to blind spots. See, the way the passage reads, if anyone is caught in transgression, it has the nuance of surprise. And and you know what that's like for you, that you know that there may be unhealthy patterns in your life. Or let me put it comedically. I was very loving kind, patient, gentle before I was married. (laughs) And all of a sudden I'm married to Beth and I realize she's saying like, you're not that kind, loving, gentle person. Like, but what do you mean? And it is kind of funny to think about it in that way that you know, here she is saying this to me, and I don't even recognize it in myself. I'm totally blind to it. There are simply things in my life that I've come to understand about who I am as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a leader, that I would have never seen myself were it not for Beth bringing it to my attention. Now, sometimes she has to get really strong and be really persistent. Because I am a master at deflecting in sinfulness. 
Let's add to that, what is the nature of sin? Sin deceives, sin distorts, sin blinds. So to think that we can handle our sin problem ourselves without our spouse is a joke. It is a lie from the enemy. Number three, it's your responsibility to change. There's a tension in this text. If you look at verse 2, it says, bear one another's burdens. That's on the person who's delivering the mail. But then if you look in verse 5, for each will have to bear their own burdens. Now, I don't know if it came in the book on marriage 101, but for some reason we are all gifted at this phrase. And it's this phrase that I wouldn't have a problem being loving if you wouldn't be so critical. Or any of those other phrases that I would not have yelled at you had you not said that. Do you see how we are placing the burden, the responsibility upon the, our spouse versus owning the responsibility for ourselves for what we've done? It is never our spouse's fault that we sin. And so when our spouse brings it to you, I promise you, it'll be so much easier. It'll be so much more life-giving when they simply say to you, Hey, honey, you were really sarcastic and that really hurt. And you simply say, I'm sorry I was sarcastic and that it hurt you. Will you please forgive me? It's stunning, the fruit of something like that. Guys, listen, I'm talking to the men now. Put this in your pocket to say to your wife today, I'm sorry, will you forgive me at least once today? You can write accolades for me on Facebook, Instagram, Google <laughs> for how amazing the transformation will be. I promise you, you'll have a better night if you do that one thing today. That applies to wives, but um, I'll give you an out, wives. Alrighty. Number three, the gospel deliverer. Here's the idea. God intends to use you in your spouse's life, but it takes profound wisdom. It's interesting. And as I had the opportunity. I've been uh, mediating conflicts for a number of years with a group called Peacemaker Ministries. And then I was actually with uh, Tennessee Supreme Court doing mediations for marriages for a season as well. And when you look biblically at conflict, we spend a lot of time on confession, but there are just as many admonitions to forgiveness as there is asking for forgiveness. That there are great threats that you, I mean, you will forgive to the degree that you feel you have been forgiven. Your unwillingness to forgive. And the, the text in the Gospels gets really disruptive in saying, like, if you're unwilling to forgive other people's sin, God's going to be unwilling to forgive your sin. This passage, actually, it's okay. I often make babies cry. It's just <laughs> part of my demeanor. I try not to, but that's okay. Um, the, but the idea is that this text speaks more, not to the person who was caught, but the person who catches them. 
And there's all kinds of warnings here for them. So let's take a look at this. Well, Paul Tripp has this to say. When your ears hear and your eyes see the sin, the weakness, the failure of your husband or wife, it is never an accident. It's always grace. God loves your spouse and he's committed to transforming him or her by his grace. He has chosen you to be the one of his regular tools of change in their life. Now, I will say, well, let me, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Four things about how the gospel applies to those of us who need to address a pattern of sinfulness or unhealthiness in our spouse's life. Number one is this. Your spouse matters to God. And there's two equal but opposite errors that we make. Number one, by not saying something when our spouses make a mistake. And I call that peace faking. Denying that your spouse has a problem, not addressing it, enabling is a sin. And it it comes from a place of self-protection. It's not love. Now, there's also peace breaking. Some of you need to put the gun back in the holster. Where it is more about you being right and making them to something that they never should be so that they would be the person that you want them to be. And it's more harmful than it actually is helpful. Because in the end, you need to realize is that this person you are married to is God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Don't mess up his artwork. Because he'll thwart you in it. And thankfully your spouse will resist it as well. Number two. The goal is restoration, not condemnation. Notice how he speaks to this person. Those of you who are spiritual. Not those of you who saw it. Not those of you who just want to address it. But those of you who are actually filled with the Holy Spirit. This comes right after Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. So is your heart full of the fruit of the Spirit or is it full of the fruit of the flesh? To restore your spouse is to do so in a spirit of gentleness, of soberness, of kindness. And there's this provocative passage in Romans. I think it's Romans 2 that says this about God. Oh man, I can't believe this. He says... It is God's kindness that leads you to repentance. It's not his wrath. It's not his anger. It's not his judgment. It's his kindness. And so are you approaching your spouse when they are caught with kindness? And that doesn't mean that it's not strong. Jesus was profoundly kind to the Pharisees as he just dropped these grenades in their hearts. And they would squirm and justify and get angry. I don't know how your spouse will respond, but you can at least be kind about it. Number three, engage from a good motive. 
Notice how much he says in verse 3 and 4. In verse 3 and 4, uh, For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Let each, each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Sin blinds. It's not only the person who was caught, but sin blinds. Arrogancy blinds. Pride blinds. Hypocrisy blinds. Those of us who think that we're justified to just storm into our spouse's life, to make him to the people we want. And I want you to remember this last one. I want you to remember that you're not alone. You're participating in the fulfillment of the law of Christ. So what that means is that you're participating in the work that the Spirit of God has already begun. Your spouse may not listen. Your spouse may get upset, but that's okay. I know in the recovery world, they've got a great line. If it's not messy, you're not doing it right. I remember another friend of mine said about an EKG in relationship to marriage. He said, if you go and have your heart checked with an EKG and it's flat, you're dead. Your marriage should be up and down. Because if you're that close and you're not seeing one another's sin, if you're that close and you're not seeing one another's glory, you're not doing it right. But you're not alone because God is very committed. I don't know if you've gotten this in the Bible. He is very committed to fulfilling everything that he had promised in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And your, your spouse has not been forgotten. You have not been forgotten. So I want to close with this quote from what my friends call the Pope that are in Manhattan, um, Tim Keller. I don't know, are you guys familiar with Tim Keller? That didn't go over as well as I hoped. <laughs> He's not a Pope. Um, he is in Manhattan, though. <laughs> it's funny. Um, things that you shouldn't say on the road. It's uh, new congregations. You never know who they admire. And so... He says this in his book on marriage. (laughs) Within this Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at you, at your magnificence, and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. All righty, ladies. I want to talk to you for a moment. If you want to have a great evening with your husband, I triple dog dare you. (laughs) To look into his eyes and simply say, I am so thankful to be with you. And I see in you something magnificent. And I want to be a part of it. What's something that I can do now to encourage and affirm what's going on in your heart? Guys, would that not just make your heart sail? 
Or if you're like me and you're really sinful, you'd somehow try to dismiss the encouragement because it's a little too uncomfortable that someone would see the person that you long to be but are having trouble getting there. It's not rocket science, uh, but it is the science of the gospel that when we trust to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, things change. When we take matters into our own hands, we wreak havoc. So, with joy, with thankfulness, with childlike faith, let's lay down all the strategies we've used to try and get the marriage that we want and simply pick up the promises that are yes and amen in Jesus Christ and walk in freedom and faith, hope, and love that we might find our greatest joy in walking in Christ's love. Let me pray for us. And Father, um, these things are tough because in a passage like this, we feel the both and. We feel the admonition, wow, I can think of all the ways that I've screwed things up. And then we hear about the truth of the gospel. We're like, wow, I hope so much that you would show up and, and change me and change my marriage, change my family, change our, our, our whole f- generational family. But we really, really, really need you to show up. We want to experience the power that your scriptures have promised. We want to experience the renewal, the reconciliation, the peace that you have already promised us. And so you said that for your children, all we had to do was simply ask and that you would pour it out. You would rend the heavens and come down. So this morning, we ask that you would pour out humility and faith and hope and love that our hearts may have come alive to you in an entirely new way. And with glowing, transformed faces, we might enter into one another's life with joy, anticipating your work in their lives. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Off, didn't I? There we go. I'm back on. You're you're done, McCord. I'm turning your mic off. How apt it is that we have the awesome privilege to participate in a family meal. It's a meal of reconciliation. It's a tangible reminder that as we have heard and as we have seen, as we will touch, as we will taste the truth of all that God has accomplished for us, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When we come to take communion together as a meal, we proclaim not only what Christ has done in the forgiveness of sin, but what he intends to do by restoring every people, place, and thing in a new heavens and a new earth. So when we eat together, we recognize that we are inclined to screw this thing up. But we praise God that he has never left nor forsaken us. Now, he gives us a couple of warnings as well. One, 
if there's something going on in your life right now that you need to restore and reconcile, if, if there's something that's heavy on your heart regarding your own life, you need to confess that. But recognize that the cross is massive. You can't strain infinite kind. You can't tax eternal love. You stand forgiveness. Will you walk in it? If there's something you need to confess to a brother, a sister in Christ, your spouse, be a fool for Christ and just say, I'm sorry, forgive me and come to the table. If you do not know Jesus Christ in this way, if you have not received Christ for your own righteousness to repenting and turning from your willingness to live life your own way, we encourage you don't take part in the meal but stay in your chair and to receive Christ by faith, laying hold of his promises that you have turned away from him and that you now trust in his work on your behalf for the forgiveness of sins, that you might begin to experience the abundant life that he promises now and forevermore. So I believe there are four stations, two in the back, two up front. I'm your stewardess for today. And there's gluten-free back in the back corner. And that's not any less effective. (laughs) But before we come, let's give a moment of silence before our Father. And let's just check in with Him. If you need to apologize to your spouse, just turn to Him. If you need to apologize to your kid, to your parents, just do it right now brief moment. I'll pray and then we'll partake together. Okay? Let's pray. Fathers, I'm mindful of all of your promises and even the fact that you gave us your written word, that you gave us the promise of your Holy Spirit, because you knew that we are prone to doubt. You knew that we are prone to forget. And so you call us to remember. You even gave us a meal as a tangible reminder of what you have done for us. So thank you for Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the elements that we're about to take. And thank you too that you have put people in our lives who dearly care about us and that you intend to use what is sometimes a messy dance in order to glorify yourself. And for that, Father, we say thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Children of God, come and eat with your father.